0: It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state-of-the-art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs by the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your Airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Hello, once again, everybody. Welcome to the Airhead 247 Podcast. The R90s, that of course, remains one of the most important and iconic motorcycles during bmw's airhead run in fact this is the second program we've dedicated at least in part to this model and this week we have a chat with author writer and motorcycle enthusiast ian Falloon. ian wrote the definitive book on the r90s which was out of print for some time however good news it's now available once again in a second edition the second pressing has new photographs as well as insight and commentary from designer Hans Muth. So a total of 112 pages of R90s glory to sift through in this new edition. To get a copy, here's the deal. PayPal.me backslash Ian We'll have links to that PayPal address in the description portion of this podcast so I don't have to read it 37 times. The price is 100 U.S. dollars or equivalent uh, currency wherever you may be in the world, and that does include shipping. Ian asks that you include a contact phone number and address with each order. So once again, look for order information in the About section of this podcast. Before we get into this week's program, we got a letter from a listener, Eric. He writes, and I'll paraphrase here, Uh, I have a 79 R45, which we all know, coincidentally, is technically out of the 247 model range. But it's an interesting story. Eric says he shipped the bike over from Germany when he left there a few years ago, back in 2020. He paid $900 for the motorcycle. He said it was too good a deal to pass up. He's new to airheads. He's enjoying hearing from our guests, which make him more confident to tackle small projects and goals on his bike. As for oil, Eric tells us he uses uh, 2050 Miller's Classic Motor Oil, which I think was mentioned uh, in a previous episode, and his reason being for the high ZDDP content. So, Eric, thanks for taking some time to write. Glad you're getting something out of the podcast, and great luck with the bike. As usual, you can reach us at our email address, Airheads, make sure you add the S, airheads247 at hotmail.com. Let us know your Mount Rushmore of the Airhead run or thoughts on any of our hot topic questions we ask our guests each week. With that, let's get into it. It's R90S author Ian Falloon on the Airhead 247 podcast. Uh, We're on on the line with Ian Falloon, and Ian, the first thing I want to talk to you about, uh, but let me say first, say thank you for taking some time to visit with us. The long-awaited second edition of the R90S book uh, is available. Uh, and when by the time folks hear this, it will have uh, been out, hopefully, for a while. So my first question to you is uh, what took so long to get the second edition out? Uh, well,
1: the main problem is that um i didn't have it uh, and, and the material from the, the the original publisher Whitehorse they they um closed and i never had, and, and i didn't ne- they didn't return my material so i had to i've really had to start again with it and um so that was, it was just the time of finding the time to do it was the problem so um but we sort of getting get, get, got there in the end.
0: And wow! Okay, I didn't realize that. So, in essence, you kind of had to rewrite the book. Am I understanding that right?
1: Yeah. No, the rewriting was fine. Um, I had all the text. It's just a lot of the and a lot of the uh, digital images were fine, but uh, the other images I didn't have anymore. So, uh, and some yeah, I I lost some of the images. Images. So, um, and then I also had Hans Mus. Who complained to me about some things in the earlier edition? So I suggested to him, um, "Why don't we do another edition and you could, he could fix up those things that he didn't like and he could add some more things, which is what he's done. So he's written a few things on the development and added uh, added more pictures. So it's sort of a it's a similar book, but it's got a lot of new information as well."
0: I see. So when you used the word uh, that Hans complained, uh, did he reach out to you? Did, or were you guys colleagues and friends, and you ran into him other ways? How did, how did you get word that there was some stuff?
1: Yeah, he, yeah, he reached out to me. Um, I hadn't contacted him in the, in the initial— when I, when I did the book initially, it was through BMW. My contacts were through BMW, and um, they didn't put me into contact with Hans at that time. Uh, so it happened later. But this, I mean, the original book was 2005, so it's not, not recent, you know. So it's sort of time for a new one, I guess. So,
0: can, you, can you uh, – are you uh, comfortable with speaking about a few of the things he wanted – "Quote unquote," corrected.
1: Uh, it was it was more to do with just the development uh, and the colours and that sort of stuff. And, um, it, it's not they're not big not big things. Just a couple of just a couple of developmental things. So anyway, what's happened now is we've put a whole got a whole two pages on the developments that weren't there before, and another two pages on the colour schemes that weren't there before. And another two pages on the development of the R100s that wasn't there before, so it's got it's got new stuff. And then I've had to, I've taken some other stuff out to make the book a bit more relevant. Um, oh. so, okay, yeah. good. So if you, go, if you buy this if you buy this one, you are getting new information. It's not just the total. A lot of it is the same, but and I've used the layout of the other one as a as a, as a template, so it looks very similar. So,
0: uh, and so folks who are listening, um, by, again, by the time this airs and folks have, uh, will be tuning in, how do they get a copy of the new uh, edition?
1: Yeah, well, so this, this, this is going to be printed like basically to order, so it's quite expensive. So um, what will happen is that if you buy from the U.S., you buy directly through me, and the book will be printed in the U.S. and shipped from the U.S., this company, individually printed and shipped, and it's the same in any other country in the world. These are will be individually printed and shipped within in the like in Europe they have a printing arrangement and in U.S. a printing arrangement, Australia, whatever you know. So, uh So the basic costs includes will include shipping and and uh, individual printing.
0: Perfect, and then so they can they can visit your website, uh, which will have a link.
1: Well, no, not not so much a website So they probably through Facebook, they can do it through it, through, through PayPal. Through I'll put the, the things on my Facebook page, and they can do it through there. Um, pay by PayPal, and um, and we organise as soon as they pay, they pay we just organise them to get you know to get it printed and shipped.
0: Okay, wonderful. Well, I want to go back and circle back, maybe about a few more uh, details on that book and and the R90s. But <clears throat> I want to get uh, get inside you, uh, or I want to get inside your life uh, of motorcycles a little bit here. Uh, tell me your introduction to motorcycles and what got you hooked on on them at at, at a young age. Do you recall?
1: Well, I wasn't that young. Um, I was in a share house, and uh, all the other guys rode bikes, and that's how it, how it all started for me. But it, I wasn't, and I was like 21, um, so I wasn't that young. And so um, that's how it all started. And um, where I was brought up in New Zealand it was much a British bike thing, so everybody had British bikes, and they always breaking down and working on them and stuff. Uh, As far as BMWs are concerned, there were no BMWs when I was young. They were just too... No one could afford them in New Zealand. They were were just too expensive. They just didn't exist. So uh, I never really saw BMWs until I came to Australia a few years later. And there's thousands of them over here, so...
0: So yeah, you mentioned uh, growing up in New Zealand. I'm not surprised to hear that uh, Triumph was sort of the dominant uh, manufacturer and influence there. Uh, what uh, do you remember? What kind of models and bikes you were riding uh, when you were introduced to those and your friends had? I guess they were Bonnevilles and things. No, it was well.
1: I was into Norton's back then, not Triumphs. Um, yeah, so our all our crew crew rode Norton's rather than Triumphs. So it was a you know Norton and Triumphs. It's sort of like a GM forward thing, you know, um, the opposite ends of the British bike spectrum. But Norton was uh, not as com- not not as common as Triumph. There are there are a few of them, but the, you know it was uh, the Triumphs are more to do with the outdoor. Like, there were no Harveys in New Zealand either. that just didn't exist either. So, um, you have to remember that, that at that time, New Zealand was a completely closed economy and you couldn't import anything that wasn't British, pretty much. So it was, it was a different, different time.
0: Wow. So uh, you were really sort of at there was really no way to uh, to get around that? I mean, as far as, uh, you know, if you, if you had a friend in customs, I mean, was there a black market for that, or it was just
1: zero? Uh, yeah, no, there was a way around it, but but the um, you had to have what was called um, uh, overseas money. You had to have money in an overseas bank account um, or had to buy overseas currency. So... And, and for most normal people, that was impossible so uh, yeah you could you could get these things, but ju- there was a hundred percent duty on everything as well, so they were really expensive. so it was just a different time
0: um uh, in your opinion what was the what was the rationale for that at least as far as i guess the government was concerned, or why was that the case
1: well that that was just um that was the whole the sort of whole protectionist economy background, um, but yeah, the basic thing was that of the economy of self-sufficiency. I guess you know, so, so you couldn't actually buy any cons- consumer items were, you know, pretty much non-existent. Um, and, you know, but that's all changed. But it was sort of just like back then, and. Um, And with motorcycles, they were so expensive because of the 100% duty. You had to be really, really keen to to ride a bike. You know, so on the the other side of things, there were virtually no regulations. You could get a motorcycle license when you were 15. You didn't have to wear a helmet. You know, it just was just was a, a free time in that that respect. You know,
0: so. Well, that's kind of an interesting dichotomy there in that regard.
1: Yeah, um, and it's, you know, it's, but it's a long time ago now. We're talking 50, 50 or sixty
0: years ago. Sure, sure. Yeah. Did that um, sort of restrictive economy, I guess, and lack of choices as a consumer—is that maybe part of what uh, drove you to leave New Zealand and go to Australia, or were there other circumstances? Yeah,
1: no. Yeah, well, a lot of people did, did move from it because there were no opportunities. The younger people, I came. I came here to work here, and um, and that, that, that and that happened a lot. And it's just a function of a small country, small you know, small population. And uh, uh, you know, it's it's it, it's continued. It still continues today. And so,
0: it really, some there are still remnants of that.
1: There are still remnants, of that. and it happens here. You thought, um there's a brain drain to the US and, and europe from from Australia also it, you know a lot, of, a, a lot of people just move. It's the same thing a small population not enough opportunity but I'm too I'm too old to do that now <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I understand I I not to oversimplify things but I know uh, from a United States perspective in uh, these days you know we're tied Uh, so much closer together through the internet and we understand culture better and connect with uh, folks internationally on a lot uh, more regular basis uh, than years ago. But again, one thing I've just sort of noticed uh, casually is uh when you see Australian dollar prices for something versus a US dollar price, uh it can be a bit remarkable the, the price difference.
1: Oh yeah, that's that, that's absolutely true. Because the Australian dollar is not a world currency, so it's it's continually traded so it's, it's very much lower than than the US dollar. But the interesting thing is that um Waves are very high here. People get paid a lot, so the standard living is, is comparable, and um, it's, so it doesn't really... It's just only when you buy things from overseas that it becomes an issue, that, um, or when you need travel. But for, for living here, it's, um, it's not really an issue with currency.
0: So. Well, one thing I noticed, that I did a little bit of research on the internet and looked into your bio and apparently yeah. at, at one time you had a keen interest in music. Uh, I guess you were in a uh, symphony orchestra at one time. Tell me a, a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, well, I played a play in a symphony orchestra, in which I did, because uh, the orchestra I played in New Zealand folded, so I came over here. And uh, and then I worked in the orchestra for a few years, and, um, but then I had a motorcycle accident, so... That's all. That all finished. So uh, um, you just got to do something else. So that that doesn't exist for me anymore. It hasn't for a long time. So um, I just got, I got into the motorcycle writing after that finished, and um, uh, it's yeah, it's been okay. It's that, and it's sort of expanded into other things, um, yeah. You know, or, or motorcycle authentication. See, as motorcycles have changed, old motorcycles used to be worthless, but that's no longer the case. So, um, there's, you know, there's an industry, a small market for authentication, which is good
0: for me, so... Well, yeah, which is important for uh, auction purposes, insurance purposes, yeah, and, th- and things like right. that. Yeah. I-, I imagine so.
1: It's, it's more—it's more to do with collectors wanting to make sure they're getting the right thing and not a safe thing,
0: So I see. So uh, maybe the right term might be a, a consultant or something along those lines.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Consult- yeah. yeah.
0: Did um, did you? How long? Let me ask this this way. How long did it take for you to see the irony in the fact that it was a motorcycle accident that got you into moto journalism?
1: Uh, well, I, I was always interested. I was doing journalism before the accident part, part time. Okay. So it was just yeah. Um, so it wasn't wasn't a, a total. i had done a, I've done a few articles for magazines before that, and so. Um, so that yeah, it wasn't that difficult. I, I, I knew people in the in the industry, and and, um, and it's, how, it's how it, it
0: works. Yeah, so. yeah, I going through your website. Um, there's just some really neat photographs, which, by my eye, appear to be mostly from the, I guess, mid to late '70s into the early '80s, I suppose, uh, with you and just some great. Uh, European motorcycles, Ducatis, Norton's, uh, and the like. Um, I, and I guess is it fair to say that was sort of your first uh, attraction, and what you were initially and partly known for today was a uh, an aficionado of Ducatis and a Ducati historian. That's that. Uh, that's what I see a lot on your bio uh, information.
1: That's pretty much that, that that's 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 pretty correct. Yeah. Basically um the Ducati is the, is my primary source of um, you know, work and things yeah. So yeah, that's right. And it's moved it's even narrowed down, it's moved into basically uh devil now. Uh not not even the newer ones so much. Um Basically, basically, all my work is for older bikes, older BMWs, motor goods, Reverb, Ducati, trying all this stuff. Um, yeah, so, uh, as as people, you know, as people age, the um, the, the interest for the, the older bikes sort of stays with older people, do you know what I mean? So, um, but it's still quite strong, yeah. The, so yeah, my whole business is basically around the history of other uh, the that the box.
0: One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2 Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2 Valve have years of experience with the 247 Airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2 Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer Two Valve's video repair series. These cover both twin shock and post-81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion One I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, boxer2valve.com. That's the number two, boxer2valve.com. So being a a big fan of Ducati, what was it about? And I guess this would, if I can sort of time or date stamp this, when did you really first become aware of sort of the classic airhead BMW, the 247 engine? And what what do you recall was the initial appeal? What caught your eye about uh, those particular bikes?
1: Well, the first one I saw, they were really rare in New Zealand, but I actually saw one in 1976 at, um, at a race meeting. in in the South Island of New Zealand. uh, It was an R90S. It was a silver slate. It was the only one I'd ever seen. First and only one I ever saw in New Zealand. And and it was racing in this production race, and it was just so fast down the back straight. That was my first um, impression of, of... his experience of an airhead yeah, BMW. I'd, I'd never seen them before, and I'd seen them in Europe when I've been there, but not not in the, in New Zealand. And uh, and the uh, yeah. So and then when I came to Australia in seventy nine. Well, okay, I, I came to Australia because one of, I, I met this this um, through the the uh, Italian motorcycle club. I was involved in this guy from Australia that was riding his, uh, his his brand new R100 RS this is in 77 and he was riding all around Australia and he had to come in and do an oil change so he came to my place to do an oil change and so I, um, I got to know him uh, and then when I came to Australia I stayed with him and I rode his I rode that R 100 RS a lot you know, so and we did a lot of touring together for years and years. so, um, so my experience with BMWs was the airhead and until until eighty five when I bought a K100 RS and I toured everywhere on that I took New Zealand and all around Australia. and that was a fantastic bike. Um, yeah, so yeah, so I've had experience. I've had a lot of riding experiences on BMWs, but I haven't owned so many. Then I did. I bought an R90S in the nineties, uh, and then that was a beautiful bike. And then, but I didn't ride a lot. But um, so I haven't done a lot of riding in recent years. So, yeah, but so the the, the knowledge of BMWs mainly from a few older bikes and not 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 modern ones. I got friends with a lot of modern ones, but I have never had a lot to do with them.
0: So I'm just wondering around that time, uh, sort of in the mid seventies, uh, mid to late seventies, when you were introduced them introduced to them in earnest, what was the sort of reputation and, and calling card of the BMW in Australia and maybe I guess New Zealand uh those days was it known well, like for exactly. instance as as an expensive bike you know as uh some an aspirational machine or, or how was it viewed
1: you know, They was expensive um when i came to australia in 79 i looked at buying a bike and the bmw was way more expensive than anything else like double the price of a Ducati or a honda or anything and so, and I think they were expensive everywhere in '79, no, but they were really expensive here. So I didn't. I looked at buying an R100, RS back then, but It was too expensive for me. So um, that's what they they were expensive. They were not. Um, they were not really so much mainstream bikes here because of the expense. But but what they did have they had. They were ideally suited to the conditions, long travel suspension, large fuel tanks, you know. And uh, you know, I remember t- touring with the R100 RS, I and mean, they could go twice, had twice the range of other bikes and larger pads so. Yeah, I mean, I can't
0: and imagine. Yeah, I can't imagine. Was there much of a, a secondary market and? Uh, or second-hand market, and, you know, was there even much of a dealer network? Did you have many options as far as those kind of things go?
1: There was, wasn't, wasn't a huge dealer network for BMWs. Only, like, one dealer in each city. It, yeah, they were never sold in large numbers until recently. Now they're everywhere, no. But, um, but back then, you know, to buy a motorcycle in Australia and New Zealand was this so in australia but, um, it was a serious commitment could you know, it was if you have gone to motorcycling and bought a, a new motorcycle, it was re- very expensive generally and um, you had to really it was, it was your whole life riding a bike it wasn't just discretionary income it, you really had to make a um, a sacrifice to get into motorcycling. Hmm. Now, everybody's so much better off There's so much more disposable income. Motorcycling is just another activity for a lot of people. You know? But back then, you were a motorcyclist and it was, you know, was all-consuming interest.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So it was a little bit more of a, uh, a luxury item and a lot more maybe of a
1: lifestyle uh, a purchase. It was definitely, uh, li- definitely a lifestyle um you know, you, you, but now people have fleets of motorcycles back then you, you couldn't afford to have a lot of them, you know unless you're wealthy. Most could have had one or maybe two if they were lucky, you know so um it's it's a, it's a different one, but um it's it's just gradually changed, and um and it's, it's it's more the change has been more recent, but even in the nineties, bikes were pretty expensive in Australia. So, uh, because of the currency, but uh, now, yeah, I don't know where it's all going with motorcycling. Now yeah, the are there's too many people riding, so we'll
0: see. Yeah, yeah I have a uh, poster uh, from when the from 1981 uh, when the R80 GS came out. I actually have a promotional poster from Australia. And it shows a picture of the of the GS, the first year GS, uh, with the sort of with the sunset from the outback in the background, and kind of paraphrasing uh, the tagline they use. But you know, uh, it says something about you know the BMW GS, uh, uh, what uh, Land Rover did for. Car travel the GS does for motorcycle travel for for the Outback, and I guess that, that yeah. would. Do you remember? First of all, I was wondering, do you remember that promotional campaign or that poster? I don't
1: That's what that bike is. Yeah, it, it, became, it became it became the, the Land Rover, well, of, of the you know of the Outback, and um, worldwide has become, you know, the benchmark for. Uh, adventure, adventure touring now is a big, it's a big deal, and and that started it all. And um, uh, that's the biggest selling motor- BMW motorcycle in Australia is the GS. It Has been for years.
0: Yeah, and uh, again, sort of hearkening back to that poster, I can see when that was introduced why that would have been a, a great target market, albeit. You know, as you were mentioning, it was uh, a luxury item and very expensive back then. But the way those motorcycles were built, uh, those first GSs, uh, as they used the Land Rover comparison, uh, they were really designed uh, for, you know, many days of travel, large fuel tanks, uh, you know, more reliable than most uh, other models uh, at the time. I mean, do you recall... Uh, the popularity of those early models and how those grew in popularity uh, later on in the airhead run there?
1: Yeah, I, I do. I, I followed all that. Um, and there's plenty of them around. Still plenty of them around. 11, 1100, even 1000s, even 1, 1100 GSs, 1150s, of that everywhere. And they are very popular in Australia because... They're, they're like the perfect motorcycle for, for you know if you want to ride on dirt roads and that sort of stuff. They're not the perfect off-road bike, but they're perfect sort of touring bike, really.
0: I want to go back a little bit to uh, talk a little bit about the R90s and talk and yeah. kind of dig back into your uh, book a little bit. Again, uh, as we mentioned at the top of the interview, uh, the second edition of uh, Ian's R90S book is out, a long-awaited reprint. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's sort of frame, start the this part of the conversation this way. In your opinion, uh, and especially given all uh, your history and knowledge of Ducatis and other uh, sport bikes, uh, Italian, European sport bikes of the era, how did the R90S kind of fit in with those early superbikes of the era and then how did it also differentiate itself?
1: Well it was it was a different bike. I mean it's not a the r is more of a, a sport tour than a than a sports bike. And it's got long travel suspension, uh comfortable riding position. You know <laughs> The biggest difference between an R90s and, and the, the Italian sports bikes is that, that you can ride an R90s all day uh, because it's got you know high handlebars and a little a, and the little fairing, comfortable seats. It's just it's just a more comfortable bike. So um, I think that that's, well, it's was a good it a good formula that R90s formula. I, I don't see a lot of modern bikes following that, actually. They're either naked or super sports bikes, and I think that's a good form of the R9 with the, um, the more upright riding position, comfortable with the little fairing, and uh, comfortable suspension. I think the r 9s IS a great bike, and finally people are realising how, how good it was. So quality, the quality of manufacture was very high better than a lot of other bikes at that time and even today and uh, the thing about those airhead BMWs that I've noticed is that you can ride them along for, they last they last a long time um, and they're reliable you know they don't fall apart and so it, you can do high mileages and they and yeah, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna be there at the other end. Just so yeah. You know. So I think that, you know the R90s is, is a bike that it's a little bit undervalues, unappreciated. But I think it's going to change.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know if you follow. Um, there's a, a popular website, uh, auction website now here uh, based in the United States called Bring a Trailer. Are you familiar with that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I follow that pretty closely. Okay. And some, some Daytona Orange R9S's go for high prices. I, I wonder how real some of that is.
0: But, you know, um. <laughs> well, you're not, the fir- you're not the first person to question <laughs> if some of those are, you know, if those are actual yeah. hammer prices and somebody paid those. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, I did an interview. Uh, we did an episode uh, with Marc Francois. Uh, who's based in California, and he did the restoration and sold uh, the, uh, I think it was the '76 uh, Daytona Orange that went for sixty thousand uh, uh, dollars. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. early in two thousand twenty-two, uh, earlier uh, this year, and yeah. that that went the you know that bike went to uh obviously somebody with some money they were actually a a bmw car dealer uh maybe they had a motorcycle dealership i can't remember the backstory but essentially it was just purchased uh to be kind of uh, a little bit of candy eye candy on on a showroom floor uh for a dealer uh and not necessarily a rider but that uh without a doubt is the record hammer price i mean that bike won uh I think it won its class, which, which class, I don't know, at one of the prestigious uh, shows here, the Quail Motorcycle Show. But yes, that has set, obviously set a benchmark for a restored quality R90S. Here in the States, you know, these days we're still seeing rider examples. I purchased one in 2019, uh, a 75. That was Daytona Orange, original paint uh virtually un unmolested, uh unaltered, uh with about thirty thousand my a little under thirty thousand miles, and that was about eleven thousand dollars uh three or four years ago.
1: Oh, that, that's, you see that I prefer those original paint unmolested bikes personally to these over restored things. I mean that that sounds to me like an absolute bargain. Um uh for eleven thousand dollars,
0: it sounds really cheap. I, I was pretty happy. I was pretty happy with the purchase, <laughs> you know. And it was one of those things where I had looked around. It took me about two two years uh, of searching, you know, on a weekly basis to try to find one. And uh, when it popped up, you know, you, I mean, you know how it goes when you see a bike that you want, you've got the right feeling about it. You've just got to be ready to make a deposit and. And make a move on it, not really dilly dally around on it, because by the time uh, I had called and inquired about it, you know, the it was on a consignment through a dealer, and the guy said, you know, well, we've taken five or six calls on this today, and I said, look, I'm just let me give you a thousand dollar deposit right now on the credit card, and uh, you know, we'll we'll work out the rest soon. But uh, anyway, the whole point there being is, um, you know, there still are reasonably priced rider bikes uh i'm like you and i think a lot of guys who are fans of the bikes uh an over that's an unfair way to say it A, a fully restored bike uh you don't get to enjoy it as much you can consternate you know you take it out into the take it out of the garage and you know it rains or something and you're consternating about having to polish it and those kind of things where with an original paint uh, rider type bike you can really enjoy it uh, for what it is
1: yeah well I think I I I just prefer original things because there's sort of time from that era then and that for me you know so uh, uh, it's a personal
0: preference yeah i you know ian i've always felt that way too when i get on uh on that r90s uh and you look in the cockpit uh and you see the four gauges you know the the voltmeter and the clock and the and everything down there the paint it uh, it just does it, it's it is kind of like a time warp or, or a time machine the bike has its own aroma Uh, Of course, you know, every sort of brand motorcycle has its own, you know, aroma and smell. And when you get on something like that, uh, it's it's an experience that's hard to recreate any other way. Since this program launched in March of 2022, we've heard from a number of you telling us how much you enjoy it. So first off, thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who, coincidentally, are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal, to add 200 new members. And to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 listeners. The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Complete the online form and use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Or go to the description section in this podcast. We've popped a direct link right there. We want to say thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, and thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast, where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the activation code AIRHEAD247. I, uh, along those lines, um, uh, some of the other bikes from that era, which I know you've written about uh, extensively, uh, one in particular, the Ducati 750 uh, Supersport, uh, uh, I'm going to get the color wrong, sort of that uh, aqua blue or uh, frame with the silver uh, fairing, yeah. um, and there's some great photos of you, I think, on, on some of those on your website. Also, around that time, you had the Moto Guzzi uh, 750 Sport, the Kawasaki Z1 or uh, Z1, I guess as it's known, uh, in your neck of the woods. Those motorcycles uh, of that era really brought in a new sort of design vernacular, performance, fit and finish, and and customer expectations. Um, how how did that sort? How did those kind of bikes? and the R9DS sort of change the industry and customer expectations, because those are just light years beyond what other offerings were out there prior to that.
1: Yeah. It changed the whole, I, you know, I think that, that early 70s was the high point of motorcycle um, design, really. You know, they've got the, um, it's, it's, it started with the Honda Four, but then, and then it sort of um, evolved. And for me, I think there's that the era of bikes, and that that small window you're talking about. You know, the, the uh, Kawasaki Nine Hundred, um, could see the even the Le Mans and V Seven Sport, the Seven Fifty SF Ducati. That, that those those bikes. Um, it's just a little special, it's a special era for motorcycle design, as far as I'm concerned. That that's the, that, that, the and the the r 9 is, is sort of right in that window, 73 to 76 is sort of that window, um, and that's that's the win, that that's the sort of the window that um, is my personal preference. So the buy for that era. Yeah, yeah
0: I, I'm going to agree with you 100 percent on that. Yeah, you mentioned the. Uh, the Honda four, which I guess was what 69 or 70, the, uh, the 754 CB 754. Now that, of course, that was a, a groundbreaking bike, uh, in performance, um, in, in a lot of ways, again, what the customer, uh, consumer could expect performance wise, uh, build, not necessarily build quality, but, um, uh, if we want to use, you know, technology-wise, you know, it was a lot different. More bikes were going to 12-volt systems, uh, electrical systems, and things like that. You know, the 60s were firmly behind us there. Um, I, what's your take on uh, out of all those models? Uh, we, You know, we mentioned the 90s, the Ducati, the Moto Guzzi, uh, the Kawasaki, even the Honda to a certain degree. Um, how, in your opinion... What manufacturer sort of reaped the rewards of what they were able to develop in that era into long-term success? Maybe not one in particular, but some of them probably did it a little bit better than others.
1: Uh, well, I mean, I think that you know the Japanese were the most successful, um, undoubtedly. I mean, that they completely destroy the British motorcycle industry and, um, and, they, and and they marginalised. The Europeans were just marginalised compared to the Japanese in terms of volume. And for me personally, I was never brought up on Honda 4s uh, because ne- there were hardly any around. But in Australia, all my friends were brought up on Honda 4s and Kawasaki said, One's or whatever, but for me, that they were not part of my thing. So I don't. I know, I, I've had, I've owned the Kawasaki and, uh, and not the Honda. But for me, they're not. They just don't mean as much because I just, I, they, I wasn't brought up with them. But for people that were brought up with them, I can see the appeal, the, the appeal and interest. So, but historically. Yeah, the Kawasaki and Honda, and even the Suzuki Seven Fifty, and all those Japanese bikes, the Suzuki, re Fives, and what, you know, two-stroke Seven Fifties, Yamaha. There's a whole lot of Japanese bikes that are, that are historically important. But for me, I'm just, I tend to focus on what now, what what I grew up with, basically.
0: So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't 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 we all to a certain degree, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's it's the and we're not covering any new ground here. And I'm sure uh, you allude to this uh, in, in the R90s book. Uh, but tell me, in your research, uh, when you were uh, you know initially writing the 90s book, and then maybe as you were uh, refreshing it for the second publication, uh, is it can you overstate how important the 90S was to BMW uh, motor rod division uh, at the time and what it did to keep uh, the motorcycle uh, part of BMW afloat?
1: Yeah, I think it was pretty important because it it just took them in another direction. And, uh, and, and just ch- and changed the public perception of BMW, you know. So uh, I think sure. it was a pivotal, and the, the the GS was the next one, but uh, before the GS and R nine hundred and eighty S was a pivotal fight. And um, yeah, I think that you can't. It was very important for them. And that and 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 Hans, he he thinks the same. That's why he wanted to contribute to this book. So
0: does. Um <clears throat> Uh, you know, obviously, I've n- I've never met Hans. Um, you've you've had some conversations with him here recently. Uh, do you, is he surprised by the longevity and the popularity uh, of that particular model? Uh, that that you can tell?
1: No, no, he's not surprised. I mean, uh, I think he's very proud of it. Actually, so yeah. It's not, it's not surprising. I don't think it's surprising. Now, when it comes down to things, if you look at the the bikes and cars, that or anything that that has long-lasting influence and, as, as, and and a following and a collectability, it comes down to how they look, and the better-looking um, creations always do better and the R90S is a fantastic looking motorcycle and it actually looks completely different to the stroke five you know it's just like another another generation it's even though it's pretty much similar it's almost like a generation moved on and I I think it always comes down to to the looks of things how, how, how important they are they're going to how they're going to survive
0: yeah, well, uh, peop- uh, that's why you know when you said that I was just thinking about you know that's how certain breeds of dogs uh, stay popular
1: uh, or or yeah, exactly so it's, it's for anything it applies to anything yeah how they look is the defining feature and it's not just motorcycles but in this case the reason the r90s is the reason someone pays sixty thousand for a, an, a Daytona orange. It's because of the way it looks. It's nothing. It's nothing else.
0: Yeah, because obviously, yeah, the guy. I mean, yeah, he's not going to be driving it a whole lot. I think. I mean, maybe. Uh,
1: yeah, so yeah. It's it's purely purely on what the way it looks, and so, and it's the same with anything. So, yeah. Uh,
0: anyway, tell me a little bit about I, tell me a little bit about the the sort of research, uh, and interview process, I guess, uh, talking to people uh, throughout uh, the globe, really, about when you first put the 90s book together, uh, and uh, on the second rewrite, and I guess to a certain extent, too, uh, your other Airhead book, the Airhead, uh, I may have the title here wrong, the Bible, uh, the Airhead Bible. Um, Take us in a little bit uh, to your research and, and interview process, who are you talking to? Where are you getting pictures from? Uh, wh- how are you finding out production dates uh, for things, serial numbers, all that sort of
1: stuff? Yeah, well, I mean, I went to the first book I did was the BMW story, so and I, I went to Germany to research that, and um, I met Fred Jacobs, yeah, uh, and he was their historic, historian, historian and I got to know him pretty well. And I, so I, I had a good relationship with the BMW factory and always have had. And so when I did the the R90S book, he put me on to a whole lot of people in the US, um, Udo Girtle, and so I visited him. And then I got through the R90S, um Matt Kirkpatrick in Pennsylvania he was really he really pushed for that book and um, uh, he put me on to Bob Lutz and it sort of just sort of moved from there and I went to visit the Udo in California he gave me a lot of photos and um, and Fred he's always been helpful with photos in, in BMW and and um, uh yeah, and I have and got to know other people, Kurt Friedman. I got to know I've, yeah, I just to yes, get to know people and I visited many people in the US. Um so that's how it all all happened. Um the modern one uh the, the only new information is from um, Hans Mutt. That's all. Uh, the the rest is all all as it was.
0: Yeah, you know, when I purchased uh, my bike, uh, as I mentioned back in 2019, uh, after I got it home, one of the first things I wanted to do uh, was to get a copy of your book uh, because, I, a, uh, you know, I wanted to read more about it, uh, learn more about it. I knew there was some important information there uh, that uh, that a, a new owner would want to know, uh, especially if you're going to be concerned about. Getting the correct parts uh, when purchasing parts, or if you have just purchased a bike, you want to make sure you've got correct year model parts for your particular bike. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of there's a lot of minutiae involved in just that three year run. Uh, whether it's the curved stock mirrors uh, on the on certain models or uh, the line on the battery cover uh, on the right side of the motorcycle, uh, but, you know, all sorts of details internally, neutral switches uh, for the transmission change, flywheel bolts and all those things kind of change. So and you've done a really good job uh, covering a lot of those things. How is when you're getting production numbers, uh, that's one of the, one of the things I wanted to ask you about in particular in the bike is, Uh, In some areas, uh, if I recall, you'll actually list serial number runs, model runs, where certain parts uh, were on a certain model run and then later in the serial number those changed. Uh, Is that information you were getting from the BMW factory and uh, have you ever heard from other owners or folks to say, hey, now wait a minute, I have this bike and mine isn't like that?
1: Yeah. Look, that, that, uh, all that all that data comes from the BMW factory, all the sure. production and all the the numbers. Uh, the the changes to the bikes. Well, uh, I mean, the problem is with all these all bikes are these. The, 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 they they evolve during the model year, so I think you can't be absolutely specific about every bike. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. Um, you can tell when a, you can say when a bike was made, the, the date of manufacture. But to say what actually was on the bike when it left the factory, I, I, you, 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 you can't say that because because the part, even though the part numbers, I've got all the parts books and everything, but the part numbers stay the same, but they change the parts. Um, so. You know, it might not be exactly the same part, but it'll still sort of fit. You know, so so you can't actually be a hundred percent. There's always there's always a fluidity with these model year things, but um, you know, you do your best. Yeah.
0: Anyway. So, yeah. No. Yeah, you're right. And uh, I I don't know if you've ever seen uh, here in the states. There's a dealer called Max BMW, and they have uh, yeah yeah they've got a uh, parts. Fish uh, for all all BMW models that you're probably aware of, and that's pretty. A lot of guys use that. Uh, you know, obviously look up part numbers. What's correct? What's you know? Yeah. What's yeah. NLA and all that kind of stuff. And the line of demarcation, at least as far as BMW was concerned, and and on the parts fish, uh, the official parts fish seemed to be 975 uh, for whatever reason. Uh, September 75 sort of was a watershed mark when a lot of different things changed on that bike. Was that uh,
1: the- That's right, yeah. That, that, that's the end of the 1975 model year. So you're looking at the 76. the so 76 was quite a lot of changes because the 76 was also a transition to the stroke seven. So a lot of stroke seven parts ended up in, on 76 models. Especially towards the end, you know. So, such as, well, you know, flush gas tank, you know, caps for the, for things like that, you know. At, I think I've done some in the book, you know. That just, yeah, there there are stroke towards the end of the, 90s. There there were stroke seven parts being incorporated. Yeah, that's and there's some overlap. There's overlap between the hundred hundred the hundred r s and the um the ninety s as well you know? so um it's interesting i've got some photos of this in the new book of the um design prototypes for the hundred hundred s oh okay yeah, so that, that so that that's sort of quite interesting it, it sort of shows you some of the overlap it's yeah, so.
0: Yeah, well, good. Oh, I would, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about. And, yeah, you mentioned the uh, flush uh, gas filler, uh, the gas cap. Yeah. Uh, if I recall, even in the uh, in the first edition of the 90S book, there there's a photo of uh, a late Model
1: 76. Right. Wi- yeah. with that's that. That's exactly right, yeah.
0: So, yeah, so tell me about how—and um, th- th- this is a great transition. I had this down as one of my questions— How was the—tell me about the transition from then the 90s to the Stroke 7, as you refer to it, or the Slash 7. BMWs were always constantly evolving and changing. You know, a a three-year model run really seemed to be sort of the standard uh, in the 70s. You know, if you look at the Slash 5 series, then the 6, and then the 7, it was sort of every three years. So— Uh, Yeah, talk a little bit about how the 90S was a prelude into the slash 7, and in in particular, uh, and what Hans was doing uh, getting the the RS uh, ready for market.
1: Yeah, well, so that's what happened. And when the RS came, the 90S was basically um, superseded as their top model. So. um, You'll see it on the pictures of the of the, um, the 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 first pictures of the RS of the of the S 100S. Um, that's actually uh, got the low riding position of the RS and the solo C's and the cockpit fairing. That's what the, that's how it, that's how it was first presented. I, I think the problem was that they didn't really know what to do with the the S. After the um, when the RS came out, they did, and the S, the 90s had had, had some issues with high speed stability anyway, and so um, I think they really wanted to. They tried. They were trying. They were trying to sort of, I don't know, sideline it in a way. But certainly the pop, the the popularity of the S declined significantly when the 100s came out. It just wasn't as popular as the um, RS. So, um, and towards the end, they hardly made any of them. So it was in, in, interesting how the, the, the 90S was sort of like a, a range-leading thing as well. It was promoted as their range-leader. When the RS came out, I think it, it, it devalued. The 100S was devalued in the process.
0: Yeah, and you know some people will say um, you know who've ha- had bo- I've owned both although uh, when I owned a, a 100s it was that was many years ago I was probably 20 years ago uh, and as we mentioned you know things in the model line uh, improve over the years. there was probably a little bit more raw horsepower uh, in the in the thousands. Uh, Some other things were refined in the engine casing, uh, some of the ways the oil passages uh, were created, uh, and some other refinements in in the motorcycles. Uh, But it didn't, as you said and referred to a little bit earlier in our conversation, it probably, it just didn't have the look uh, of the 90S, Uh, even though it might have been technically a little bit better motorcycle uh, it didn't capture that sort of feeling and aura of exclusivity uh, or style, uh, even though the paint jobs, you know, were still nice on those. Uh, those those uh, those smoke finishes really were something.
1: Yeah. Well, I've just also got a thing from Hans to, that I'm going to put in the book, book now about the colours of the the hundred s, and um, so that's a nice. It's a little bit of a story about the colour, and I think the colour. Um, had something to do with the. the pop, it wasn't as popular, you know. So anyway, um, I'll be writing. I'll be putting that in the, in the book this week. So.
0: Well, that's um. that's excellent. I know. <laughs> uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing the new edition. What well, this is going to be a difficult question. I don't know that you'll have an answer. But yeah. I mean, would if yeah. if you had to have one in your garage and you had to make a choice. Uh, between a 90s uh, and an early RS, uh, say a 77, uh, is there one you would lean towards?
1: Well, I, I quite like the RS, but I, actually I don't like the riding position that much. I don't, I don't like the low bars and with the seat with the uh, sort of forward pegs. But, um, and I know it's a fantastic fairing, but. Actually, I prefer the I prefer the '90s. I, I prefer the style of the '90s. Um, anyway, but but that's sort of I prefer. I actually, prefer the early the mid '70s era bikes to the late '70s generally.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we see eye to eye on that one too. So let's. Yeah. I want to talk just a little bit about um, the overall uh, two four seven run. Uh, the 70 to 95 run, and again, uh, we've got uh, another book that sort of covers uh, that whole 25-year model range, uh, with the exception of okay. the of the GS and the R65, I think, in uh, in the in that That's book. Right. Yeah. Uh, but as a, as sort of an overview uh, of the 247, um, what are what are your impressions of some of the lasting design elements and qualities? Uh, that have made that bike kept that bike uh, popular today.
1: Well, I think it's the simplicity of it all. You know, you you can um, you know the, the yeah you know, the, the bikes you can you can do the valve adjustment yourself. You know the the. the okay. Okay. Oh, a, a bit of action going. On. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Uh, You're fine. So, um, yeah, yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a general simplicity. Uh, they, they, you know, they they appeal to people who understand. You know, they don't want the complexity of a lot of things. You know, just electronic fuel injection and uh, water cooling and all this sort of stuff. You know, so. Uh, I think that's w- w- why they they um, they they have a lasting and, and, and enduring appeal.
0: What was your take on sort of the end of the model run? The last sort of ninety-two to ninety-five models. A lot of you know a lot of people sort of considered that some of those parts bin bikes, and I guess to a certain degree that was the case. They were using parts as any manufacturer would do, uh, I suppose, from other bikes and repurposing them. Uh, But the last of the Airhead run, the R100R, uh, the later uh, GSs, uh, Paralever GSs, those were some really fine bikes. Uh, I've always, I've owned a few of the R100 Mystics. I always found those. the handling on those was really nice. Uh, what, what was your take on that last model run, and uh, just in, in general? And then, if you recall, uh, the the reaction t- to the end of that run in in the mid to late nineties when the last one rolled off.
1: Yeah, I've had a bit to do with our um, uh, yeah, I one hundred hours. Yeah, I think the problem with... that. Is that they were just they were just from an earlier era, and I think they just tried to keep it going too long. Um, when is when you compare them to the the next generation, the 1100s, yeah, you know, the four the four valve ones, um, they do feel old and agricultural. Um, and I can see, I can see why the um, the next generation took took over. Uh, but I, mean, I I would still prefer. I'd still, I, I don't see the reason to buy an um, an R100 uh, over an earlier. I don't see them being any better really than a, an R90s personally. But they're still all locked in their times in their time span.
0: That's a good point. You know, I never really thought about that. The late model uh, R100 compared to yeah, as you mentioned, the the early uh, oil head or whatever they called it. Uh, then it was, <laughs> were, yeah, it was a huge difference. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, on, on many different levels. Uh, that that that's a good point there. So, uh, in in your estimation, has there been another sort of uh, model run that's enjoyed the kind of success as the 247?
1: Are you mean for BMW or for yeah, just
0: Just anybody.
1: Anybody. Um, well, I, I could really probably say that um, some of the Japanese engines have lasted a long time, you know, like KLR650s and stuff, but I don't think they've had the same impact as the 247. Um, but I think the Motor Gutzi is similar. You know the the um, the uh, air cooled V twin that's lasted a long time uh, in, in various forms. Uh, I, I just see the two four seven as rather a um, it's just it's just part of a whole evolution of. BMW Box of Twins, really. It's just, it's just it's just it's just it's just a a component of a whole story. A, a chapter and a story. I don't see it as a separate thing as much. Um Yeah, but yeah, like the, the like the chapters go the the chapter before that was the um sixty nine the 69, the sixty nine and sixty nine uh, in the, in the previous chapter, and then the, you've got the 247, and then you've got the you know the, the oil heads after that, and now you've got the water cooled things. Just I think it's, a, it's an evolutionary thing,
0: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, Moto Guzzi is a good comparison, um, it is kind of a blend and in essence of sort of uh, what BMW did well with the air cooled twin, albeit a different. Uh, configuration uh, in an angular matter, in the engine configuration. Uh, but it still sort of had that, uh, that feel, uh, style and sort of rawness, if, if I can use that word, uh, of a motorcycle uh, of that era. And th- there are some comparisons between those two. I had a El Dorado uh, California police bike from the late 70s or, or mid 70s for a number of years I really enjoyed it and to me it was sort of like the combination of a, a BMW and a Harley um uh, you know with the wide handlebars and the foot footboards and the heel toe shifter and things like that it was a it was a unique bike that sort of blended uh those two design elements uh in a in a fun way
1: yeah no i agree that, exactly I'd agree with that exactly. What your comments about the motor goods is. Um and that because they they don't change things as much as BMW, they just don't have the the, uh, the capability to change. It's a much smaller operation. Uh, that their models last a lot, long time, and. Um, uh, yeah, but um, yeah, it's a lot. it's an interesting, interesting comparison that the uh, California, particularly, with the, with the Harley thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, okay. This question, I think, I know two of the answers you would give because we've talked about them pretty extensively. Um, I, and I don't know if uh, your American history gives you any reference point here, but when we ask somebody, you know, for the Mount Rushmore of something. Uh, to us, that means... Matt,
1: yeah, no, 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 it's, it's the one... I've been to America lots of times. I've seen a lot of places. It's the one thing I haven't been to is Matt Rushmore, but I know about it, yeah.
0: Okay, good. All right, so, so you understand the reference. Um, yeah, I do, yeah. Perfect. All right, so I think two of those uh, on the mountain, which is uh, in South Dakota here, uh, would be the 90S and the RS uh, for you, again, sticking in the 247... Uh, Model run. What what would the other uh, two be? uh, uh, Your of your four favorite.
1: You mean you're talking about?
0: Yeah. So. uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Two others aside from the 90s and the RS, which I'm just assuming you would put up there. uh,
1: Yeah. 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 So I think that I would go for an earlier one, an R68, as well. I think it's a pretty special bike and. Um, and I know this is not a popular thing, but, you know, the, the absolute best motorcycle i ever owned. And it shouldn't have been. It just was, was the K100 RS. Really? That was such, a, such a good bike. <laughs> I did so many miles on that, and it handled so well. And it just did everything so well. And, and I don't really like water-cooled inline fours and stuff, so much. Now, but, uh, uh, and, but that was such a good bike, so it would have to be in my top four.
0: Sure. And what, uh, just what year and uh, color was that K-bike?
1: Well, and it was one of those red, red red-y ones, yeah.
0: So. Oh, okay. All right. Um, yeah. St- yeah. Sticking with the 247 design, all the research, interviews, and things you've done, is there sort of, is there one big design uh, flaw or foible, I guess, uh, in that uh, series of engines uh, you think BMW could have easily avoided?
1: Yeah, I, well, I think from owning an R90S and riding an R100 RS, I think they could have done a lot better job with the brakes, um, the front brakes. Uh, um, I, I, I don't like that. NASA cylinder under the tank like that, all these cables. And, uh, and they, they fix it up later with the Brembo, and I think they should have done that right right from this word go, put Brembo
0: brakes on the front. Yeah. 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 I'll agree with that. A lot of people consternate about the ATE under tank master cylinder. Yeah. Um, I just recently purchased a 78RS, uh, and for the first time I've had an airhead with a rear disc. And uh, yeah. I, it's, it's a pain in the ass. It's, there's really no other way to put it. Um, but that's a, a another story for another day. Uh, all right, so what I want to ask yeah. you here as we close out, and again, thanks for taking some time, navigating the uh, time differences and uh, days of the week and all that stuff for the conversation. Uh, what can we look forward uh, to in addition uh, to the new uh, R90S book? Are, are there some other Airhead, maybe some GS books in the works, some other motorcycle uh, things you're working on? What's on the horizon?
1: Uh, I'm not really doing much at the moment. I'm just concentrating on this, this R90S because I'm going to have to sell it direct. So it's going to be, a, hopefully, it'll be quite busy. I, I don't know how it's going to go. But um, I'm not really planning anything else at this stage. I've uh, uh, got, enough, got enough to do. So, um, but what I'll do is I'll email you the when it's finished the details of how you can how people can pay for this. They can do it through PayPal. Perfect. I'll send you a link. Perfect. And um, if you want to forward that to people, anybody you like, and. Uh, It'll cost to be 100 U.S., including shipping, worldwide shipping.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank thank you again for the time. We'll uh, we'll be in touch uh, via email. And, Ian, uh, keep up the good work.
1: Okay. Thanks. Appreciate it.
0: Okay. Bye-bye. Well, it's good to know the R90S book is out again. We're glad Ian has that in the second edition. And we really appreciate him taking some time to visit us this week on the podcast. Again, check the About section for information on ordering your copy. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer, engineer, is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.